Blackbeard the pirate really knew how to make an intimidating first impression. He was like 6'5", and he had pistols and cutlasses and everything draped all over him. And then before he would go into battle, he would light these fuses in his hair. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we look at the legacy of the Pirates of the Carolinas. On the Pacific coast, San Francisco's Victorian neighborhoods are said to be haunted by the ghosts of disappointed lovers. I tend to think that she's there still waiting for him to come back. Well, in Ireland... Don't talk about them, don't mention them, and avoid the times at which they're most prevalent. And those times are the borders between seasons, like Halloween, the transition between autumn and winter. We'll hear how the fairies of Ireland still pester the Irish today. Up the airy mountain, down the rushing glen, we dare not go a-hunting for, for fear, fear of little men. men. It's all lurking just around the corner on Travel with Rick Steve. When I asked a couple of my friends from Ireland to join us on the show to talk about their country's legends of fairies and banshees and things that go bump in the night, they were a little reluctant at first. I thought it was because they didn't want to appear superstitious or maybe out of date. And that's what they wanted me to believe. But I wonder if they weren't just a little afraid. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we hear how the Irish accommodate tales they grew up with of fairy folk lurking in their surroundings and why they're testing their luck right now by making an exception to talk openly about it with us. We'll also explore San Francisco's legends of ghost sightings, from Al Capone on Alcatraz to a grieving mother who still wanders Golden Gate Park. Let's start with some wild tales of historical characters from the coasts of North and South Carolina. Terence Zepke has brought to life 13 notorious pirates in her book Pirates of the Carolinas. She relates stories of ships weighted down with gold, crews too drunk on rum to fight, treacherous colonial officials, mutineers, privateers, and the sad end of the line for the pirates who got caught. Ahoy, Terence. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me. Give us some background on on this. What, What was the golden age of piracy in the United States? Well, we really don't know how long piracy has been around, um, but it's been around at least 2,500 years there. And there was an era during its heyday that was known as the Golden Age of Piracy. And that was the late 17th century to early 18th centuries. And oh, I that's see. So when it's before the United States. It'd be colonial America. It was colonial America when they came over here. And interesting, North Carolina had a lot of the officials had partnerships with the pirates, We were sort of a commerce-poor place back then, so we actually welcomed pirates like Blackbeard until they had the big crackdown on piracy, and that was the end of that. So is that kind of the fine line between a privateer and a pirate? What's the difference? It was such a fine line, Rick. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, a little piece of paper, because a lot of the pirates started out, they were privateers, and they were involved in Queen Anne's War, wars all over Europe and everything, and they were commissioned to attack enemy ships in order to get money to get booty to help fund the war. And they split that money with the crown. So, yeah, so the, the king or the governor would say, you are licensed to attack ships as long as they're not our ships, and you can yeah. keep half the booty, but you got to give the rest to us so we can fight our war or whatever. Right. And so then imagine when the war is over and your navy is no longer needed like that. Well, this is all these men have ever known. There's no employment. You know, it was a fine line anyway between privateer and pirate, so a lot of them just became officially pirates. And they got to keep everything. Yeah. <laughs> nice business model. So now what was the basic action? It was mostly ships going from uh, Europe to the Americas, or where did they get their best uh, opportunities? At that time, it was all these merchant ships that were doing these trade routes. And so you could just sort of sit out there. It was just like fishing Mm. and Mm. just pluck them off. They weren't very well armed or anything. They were slow because they were big, heavy ships with a lot of merchandise on board and all. And it really didn't matter. This was one of those falsehoods that people realized. People thought pirates just wanted gold and pieces of eight. Mm -hmm. But the truth is that they wanted what they could sell. Hmm. So when they got these merchant ships and they had all these realms of fine linens and silks and tobacco and rum and all, this was this was pay dirt. Oh, so they would get this stuff and then they would go to the next port and just like you see when you travel a lot, people stealing stuff off of ships and setting up a little stand and, and selling it cheap. Absolutely. Huh. And that's what they did. And then, like I <laughs> cool. said, a lot of more in partnership with the authorities here. And so when they came into port and all that, they would look the other way and then they would get a cut. We're looking the other way, and the merchants would get discounted 
goods, the pirates would get money. I mean, everybody was happy. Sounds like a win-win-win-lose situation. I'm Rick Steves. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Terrence Zepke, and her book's called Pirates of the Carolinas. We always think Pirates of the Caribbean, and your book is Pirates of the Carolinas. Why was there so much pirate action in the Carolina coast? Well, at that time, these were pretty poor states, so we needed to get commerce wherever we could, so pirates were good for business. So we sort of were a safe haven for pirates. In fact, Blackbeard, who was one of the, probably the biggest chapter discussed in this book, he actually set up shop, actually made a home, and actually came part of the community and all up in in North Carolina. Now, he sounds like an incredible guy, and he's got this treacherous image, but according to your book, he, he never actually killed anyone because people surrendered when they saw his flag. He was so had such a ferocious image. I think marketing majors should study Blackbeard because back before that anybody knew what PR marketing promotions was, this guy was on top of it. Hmm. He knew that reputation was everything. So he didn't have to do much fighting because his reputation preceded him. So as soon as he ran up his flag, people surrendered because they weren't going to take on the great Blackbeard. Whoa. Yeah, he was tall, dark and handsome. He was like 6'5", and he had pistols hmm. and cutlasses and everything draped all over him. And then before he would go into battle, he would light these fuses in his hair so that when he landed on the ship, there's this smoking huge <laughs> guy with all these guns hanging off of him, dressed in black with this black beard and everything. So it gave, you know, quite a presence and would give him the element of advantage. And people would just uh, say, take my, take all my valuables, <laughs> but just don't kill me. Yeah. And consequently, he never had to kill anybody. Yeah, well, he did some stuff, too, to help his reputation. He actually took on the Royal Navy one time and defeated them. Huh. And pirates tended to stay away from the Royal Navy because they just weren't going weren't gonna to win when you went up against the Royal Navy, yeah. but Blackbeard did. So that helped fuel his reputation. It must have been a fun guy to work for, I guess. He's not just a Johnny Depp kind of fantasy, though. He's a real guy. And as a matter of fact, you write about there's a, a permanent Blackbeard exhibit in the North Carolina Maritime Museum. Tell us about that. Yeah, in Beaufort, North Carolina, they actually have found what they almost certainly believe, you can't say for certain, but it's pretty certain based on their evidence, that this was the Queen Anne's Revenge, one of Blackbeard's flagships, and it sank off the waters of uh, Beaufort Inlet. And so they've been excavating this ship for many years now, since I think 1996. Wow. It's an ongoing process, and so as they get things they bring up from the ship and all, they are cleaning them and preserving them and then putting them on display Hmm. at this facility. And it's a great place to learn about the North Carolina coast, about piracy, about maritime history. You also talk about pirate tours of Charleston. How's Charleston associated with piracy and what do you see there? Oh, Charleston was a big hangout for pirates back in the day. They had lots of places that they liked to come into shore, come into port and uh, drink uh, and be merry. And actually also there were a lot of hangings of pirates that took place in South Carolina as well. And you can actually go on your own or as part of a tour and see White Point Gardens where some of the pirates were hanged. Um, that was a big thing back in the day was they actually did public hangings and it was supposed to discourage piracy. You know, they would leave them up for a long time and put them in these things called gibbets, mm. which were custom-made cages for their bodies and all. So you get a real good history if you do the pirate walk. There's a really good one in, in Charleston. There's just about every kind of walk and tour option you can imagine in Charleston, including the the Pirate Walk. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Pirates of the Carolinas with Terrence Zepke. Terrence, I I love this. You put a a stanza from one of these pirate songs, and it's, Some fight tis for riches, some fight tis for fame. This first I despise, and the last is a name. I fight tis for vengeance. I love to see flow at the stroke of my saber, the life of my foe. How bloody were the pirates, actually? Oh, it could get pretty bloody because you're fighting to to the end, you know, once you engage in battle. Blackbeard, when he actually finally reached his end, when the Royal Navy actually finally did beat him, um, it was considered to be the bloodiest battle in pirate history. And he sustained more than two dozen gunshot wounds and cutlass wounds and all that before he was finally beheaded. Lay the groundwork for the battle. Why and where and what happened? Uh, Up in the Outer Banks. And this is really interesting. Some recent history has revealed that we believe that Blackbeard actually was tipped off, that Lieutenant Maynard with the Royal Navy was hot on his trail, and he had opportunity to get out of there. And he believed that he knew the waters, knew the land, and, and was a better fighter, and he convinced himself he could defeat the Royal Navy. And 
the the ship was just covered in blood from you know because the men all fought to the end you know because they know if the navy captures you you're going to be tried and hanged right so you've got nothing to lose to fight to the end and so they were all in with it you know and and actually they had told lieutenant maynard he, he needed proof that he actually killed blackbeard so he had to behead him and bring the head back to virginia so that his superiors would believe he did indeed kill the legendary Blackbeard. And he did that? Yes, he did that. And what happened to the head of Blackbeard? We don't know. (laughs) Ooh, there's a ghost story for you. What I found particularly interesting in your book, Pirates of the Carolinas, was the story of women pirates, uh, particularly Anne Bonny, who you said is your favorite pirate. Tell us about her and, and why is she your favorite? Well, because I think in earlier times, if I had had her choices, I would have done exactly what she did. And I have an Irish background. I have wild, long red hair. Uh, I was rebellious and everything. So I think I can relate to Anne Bonny. But she was actually from a very affluent family. Her father was a wealthy planter, a businessman, merchant and everything. At that time, of course, they prearranged marriages so you could marry into another suitable family. And so he had arranged for her to marry this fella who she barely knew, and he was very boring. And she was supposed to, you know, do all the things that women did at that time where you threw parties and, you know, knitted, that kind of stuff. And Anne Bonnie just said, this is not the life I want. And she ran off to sea and became a pirate. So that was kind of a really interesting thing. Now, of course, she couldn't openly be a woman pirate. She had to disguise herself And it was a very long time before anybody realized that she was actually a woman before that came out. And by that time, she'd proven herself to the crew and nobody gave a problem. But women weren't allowed on the ships back then. So a lot of these women pirates were actually disguised, you know, because there were boys, young men and everything. So it wasn't too hard to disguise themselves on these ships. Yeah. You know, they they taped their their breasts so that they would, you know, and they wore loose clothing and they they weren't showering hygiene things on the ships. So you couldn't really tell. They looked a lot like the boys that were there that helped load the cannons and things. These boys, they didn't have any facial hair or anything, so they looked, you know, they could pass. Tough women. Thinking of Anne Bonny and, and the gentleman pirates like Stead Bonnet that you write about, it wasn't just uh, looting and plundering. There was more to that among these pirates. Yeah, they were a brethren. They may have been misfits, uh, outlaws, criminals, whatever, in society. But once they came on the ship and became a part of the crew, they had each other's backs. And, you know, they became much more than pirates. They were living life on their own terms. This was about freedom. Whatever life they would have had on land, they've come out here and they can work when they work. They can party when they want to party. They can, I mean, they had musicians on board. And, you know, they, they knew how to live large. And they knew that they probably would die. So... They lived as well as they could in what was probably going to be a very short life for them as because of piracy. So they knew they probably had short lives. They did, but they lived it hard and fast while they were still here. Hanging from the rigging, singing yo-ho-ho. And a bottle of rum. Terrence Zepke, thanks a lot. And uh, we all know a little bit more now about Pirates of the Carolinas. The folklore of Ireland is full of reports of beings they call fairy folk, who can cause havoc if you mess with the trees and the stones they're said to inhabit. Up next on Travel with Rick Steves, we learn about the fairies of Ireland with Stephen McPhillamy and Barry Maloney. And they'll take your calls at 877-333-7425. By email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. The luck of the Irish also has a dark side. Among the Irish, some legends of little people come with a twinkle in the eye, and others, well, they don't want to talk about it. There's a whole host of fairy beings that people in Ireland don't like to admit they might believe in, 
But to avoid a sudden spell of bad luck, they won't dismiss them as fiction either. Two of my tour guide friends from opposite ends of Ireland are back with us now on Travel with Rick Steves to risk breaking an Irish taboo and tell us about the fairies of Ireland. Stephen McPhillamy hails from Derry up in the north, and Barry Maloney lives in Kinsale down in County Cork. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks, Thanks Rick. Barry, when you, when you think about fairies, what is it about fairies in Ireland? Uh, how is that connected with the culture? Um, fairies in Ireland, to sum them up, they can be good friends and bad enemies. And there's two sides to them. There's the stereotypical, the Walt Disney fairies, the leprechauns. That's kind of a twee commercial version of it. But the reality is there's a dark side to the reality of the folklore around Irish fairies. And what is that? Supposedly, we're not even meant to talk about them or mention them. So we're, we're probably drawing them onto us now. Just you between know? you and me. We'll hope you're not listening. <laughs> between you and me, the reality of them in description in old Irish folklore, number one, they're not small and with wings hiding under mushrooms, things like that. They're actually more human size, and they bring bad luck to people. Huh. For example, the most famous legend about fairies is they can steal your children away and replace your children with fairy children, which are old, decrepit fairies in the form of a baby, looking like your baby. So you wouldn't even know, but then your child is possessed by this fairy. Exactly, the stolen child. Oh, that's serious business. Serious business. Stephen McPhillamy, what is the role of uh, the fairy in Irish culture? Well, you see, the fairies in our culture are very present, you know, very prevalent. And there are a lot of us in Ireland who don't really believe in fairies. I don't know if it's safe for me to say that. I mean, I come from the north of Ireland where you have more to fear from the living than the dead. So the fairies are not really of any, hold any fear for me. But that being said, anywhere I travel in the world, or you say you're from Ireland, people will often say, tell us about the fairies. And I find, as a tour guide too, people are always very curious, particularly American visitors. Whereas, say, like Australian visitors, you know, people from that part of the New World don't seem to be too interested in the fairies and don't really believe in them, whereas people in North America seem very open to the idea of fairies. Ireland is a very Catholic country. It's probably a more church-going country than many places in Europe. Uh, Barry, do, are there actual educated, modern Irish people that actually factor in this belief in fairies into their outlook? There's no doubt if you ask, say, 100 Irish people, 100 of them will say they don't believe in fairies. But subconsciously, we do. In other words put them to the test and put them out in a place where you say is associated with fairies, a fairy ring or a fairy fort, and leave them there at midnight, and they won't stay very long. You know, they'll come running out. You know, that's interesting because there are these fairy forts, these prehistoric, mysterious stone circles and so on that are Mm -hmm. overgrown and they look mystical. Mm -hmm. And I understand that uh, Irish people have actually gone to great expense to build roads around these things so they don't violate the fairy fort. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's bad luck to interfere with them, move stones from them. An even more famous example is a fairy tree. Legend has it, that's where the fairies gather. And in County Clare, the county council actually steered a road around the fairy tree. Around the tree? Around the tree, because a local folklorist (laughs) stopped them and nobody wanted to take the chance. We reckon in Ireland, there's only so much good luck in your life. And why complicate things? Why take a risk? So... Don't mess with that fairy tree. But no. once upon a time, I was on the burn in County Clare and we were doing a tour with a local guide and the local guide had spent an hour talking about the flora and the fauna and he asked the group, do you have any questions? And the one hand went up and said, have you ever seen a leprechaun? The guide went absolutely nuts. He was furious that he'd been asked about <laughs> leprechauns and he said to the, the tourists, he said, what do you think I am? He said, I'm, I'm a citizen in a modern republic. I'm a university educated taxpayer. The only thing you ask me about is leprechaun. So he went nuts. So there's a sizable amount of the population don't like this association with fairies. And But as I mentioned, it's a big intrinsic part of our culture. Because Walt Disney made a movie, you see, called Darby O'Gill and the Little People back in the 1950s. And it had a very handsome young Sean Connery in it. And Walt Disney had this king of the leprechauns. I think he was called King Brian. And after that, people sort of associated Ireland with these little green men. I see. So it's always there. Like we had a poet back in the 1800s called William Allingham and he wrote a poem about our sort of fear of the unknown, the fear of fairies and their suspicions. And he said, Up the airy mountain, down the rushing glen, we dare not go a-hunting for fear fear of of little men. men. (laughs) That was in the the first Willy Wonka movie as well. We all had to learn that poem at school. Is that right? This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about fairies, and we're joined by Stephen McPhillamy and Barry Maloney, two Irishmen who say that 
Out of a hundred Irishmen, nobody will will claim they believe in fairies, but they won't mess with a fairy's tree or a fairy's fort. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Eileen in Kent, Washington, emailed us, and she wrote, While visiting Ireland in May, my cousins took me to a fairy stone near Logur in Limerick. I was told to place a few coins on the stone and make a wish. As soon as I made my wish, the sky suddenly blackened and heavy rain and wind began. We ran to the car, and just as I got to the car, the wind and rain stopped and the sky cleared. I was told that the fairies wanted me out of their ring. That's an interesting uh, example mm, of an definitely. Irish person that really can attribute yeah. crazy weather or whatever. Yeah, and you can draw parallels. I mean, in America, you could draw parallels to people who believe in UFOs. Some people do. Sure. Or in the Caribbean, you could speak about voodoo. People don't mess with voodoo. Mary's on the phone in Boynton Beach, Florida. Mary, thanks for your call. Nice to talk to you. And do you have a comment or a question for Stephen or Barry about fairies? Yes. Um, actually, I was wondering uh, how can you recognize the fairy fort? Or, but I'm actually now more interested in how do I know if it's a fairy tree? Oh, yeah. Well, the fairy trees are usually hawthorn or white thorn. Okay. And in May, you'll see them and they've got a, a white flower. But not all hawthorn trees are fairy trees. Basically, if you ask locally. If you ever drive, you know, through Ireland, you see this lush green field and in the middle of it, there's this haggard little blackthorn or hawthorn tree. Mm -hmm. And you're wondering why it's not cut down. 99% chance it's a fairy tree. People have just thought, leave that leave one Leave that alone. one tree. Probably some reason a long Important time ago where it earned that. There is a local story. The Irish government in the 30s collected folklore and a local story kept reoccurring around Ireland of a man who actually wanted to cut a branch from one of those trees. Mm -hmm. And as the saw sunk into the wood, he looked back towards his house across the valley and it was on fire. So he ran home, there was no fire. He went back, he cut again, the fire struck off again. He ran back, no fire. But the third time he actually cut the branch, went home and his house was burnt to the ground. So he was actually warned by the fairy. Warned, yeah, before he cut the oh, branch. Baby. So, all right, Mary, does that give you a little insight? One other real quick question, if that's all right. I actually uh, just moved back from Ireland. I lived there for four years in County Clare, as a matter of fact. I've been fascinated by the fairies since I lived there. And the architectural uh, piece to this, uh, I know of a school, and this is highly educated people, a very well-run school, and they were doing an addition to it, and there was some added expense because they had to build this addition so that they did not disturb either a fairy fort or a fairy tree. And I was wondering just how prevalent is this kind of thing with the architecture, with architects when they're designing buildings and... Yeah, I think, anyway. I think the reality, <laughs> I think the reality is it's not, thought, it's not too commonplace. Your average architect in Ireland wouldn't design a building to make way for the fairies, although I've seen it happening in, uh, in Hong Kong and it happens in, in Iceland and places like that. But in Ireland, not always. But the thing is, if you were to... If you were to not take into consideration the fairies and you built your school or you built your highway or something and then something went wrong, all the critics, of course, would say, well, yeah. There you go. There you go. There you go. There you are. <laughs> Thanks for your call, Mary. Well, thank you so much. Okay, bye now. Enjoy. Be careful it. of the fairies. Bye-bye. <laughs> bye now. Barbara's on the line in Brooklyn Park, Minnesota. Barbara, thanks for your call. Yes, thanks so much. It's been very interesting listening to your program. I'm wondering with young people in Ireland today, how are they taught about the fairies? Are they taught in school or is there just um, the Yeah, how do these uh, traditions continue? That's yeah, a in, very good question. Yeah, in school and for children, the emphasis is less on the dark side, more on the lighthearted, entertaining, literal stories. So the more entertainment value of the fairy stories. Because some of the stories can be quite dark. Like I think the origins of these stories often was to give some sort of social control you know, if you had children mm -hmm. back in the 1800s and you mm -hmm. didn't want them going near the river, mm -hmm. you told them the river fairies would grab them. You know, yeah. back then children were outside playing all the time in the fields and uh, in the forests and they weren't inside playing computer games. So you had to keep them safe when there was no parents yeah. around. Yeah. Parents Our fairies acted as a very serious and valid method of controlling kids and keeping them safe. Or like uh, the foxglove, it's a poisonous flower. Mm -hmm. And the legend about that is that these flowers, each flower piece looks like a little, a small glove for a child. So children would like to play with those and put them on their fingers, but it's poisonous. They have digitalis on it. So the legend is that the fairies use those to put them on the fox's feet. 
so oh, he that's can, so a very he, practical thing. So then. he can sneak into the farm, steal yeah. the chicken from the farmers. So they're dangerous to mess with because the fairies, they're the fairies' flowers. So it keeps the kids away from those poisonous flowers. So the fairy legend saved a lot of children, a lot of grief. Mm-hmm. Barbara, thanks for your call. Yes, thank you. We're talking with Barry Maloney and Stephen McPhillamy about fairies in Ireland. Barry and Stephen, there's a lot of different kinds of fairies. What's a Dullahan? The Dullahan is the sort of like the headless horseman. And right. I've never seen him up north because I think he's only a southern fairy. <laughs> <laughs> there are types of fairies you see that don't exist all over the country. They're so quite this regional. One, this one terrorizes the people in the south. What about a puka? Puka is a mischievous creature, something like the leprechaun. Mischievous, causing mischief around. Okay. The leprechaun is a cousin of the puka. We say leprechaun is a cobbler for the fairies. What about a changeling? Changeling, I mentioned earlier, it's a, a fairy creature that's been swapped for a human. Ah, that's Maybe where the word changeling comes from. Okay, so you've been swapped out and then your child Swap. has an evil presence. Swapped out. Hmm. Your body will be the same, right. but your spirit will be with the fairies. And some people in Ireland would say you're away with the fairies, meaning you're, you're a little bit touched and, or and mad, you know. What about the, I've heard of the, the banshee. The banshee is the scariest of them all. The ban is woman and she means fairy. And she screams and she foretells of death, so you don't really want to be hearing her. But uh, the good news is only people with the name O or Mac can hear her, so you might be all right. <laughs> that's, she, that's fascinating. So only people O'Leary or o, O'Malley yeah, or, or MacHenry and so yeah, on. Yeah. Yeah. But so she, has, she has uh, different appearances too. She, she has long blonde hair and a white dress and uh, has a sort of transparent face. But up the north she has long blonde hair and she has the face of a fox. And she can turn her head 365 degrees. Ooh. Uh, 300, <laughs> oh, what's that? Sorry, 360 degrees? 365, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Mark's calling from Nevada City in California. Mark, thanks for your call. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to be on your program. Yeah, do you have a comment about fairies in Ireland? Yes, actually, I have met people who have actually encountered the fairy folk. I was staying at a bed and breakfast in uh, the little town called Cherryville, which is between Kildare Town and Monster Evan in County Kildare. And I got to know the uh, owners of the B&B quite well. And one night after dinner, I asked them about uh, the fairy folk. And the lady told me that there was a fairy fort not far from the B&B where she had actually seen the fairy folk uh, on a fairy fort. I guess it was around twilight or so. And I thought this was very interesting, so I wanted to get more details and asked her, well, what do they look like? And she seemed to be rather surprised that I would ask such a thing. She felt that everybody, of course, knows what they look like. And she started to describe them. And then her husband came into the conversation, and he said, yes, uh, you know, they always look the same, about 28 inches high, and uh, described the kind of coat they wore and the kind of hat they wore. And he said, at least that's the way they were when I saw them. And did, did they both have the same story, same description? Both had the same description, saw them independently on different occasions. Well, that'd be cool. And I began to think, maybe they're putting me on. Maybe because I tell folk tales myself, and I'm an actor, and I thought, you know, maybe they're just trying to see what I'll believe. But then they added a detail that proved the whole thing to me. The lady mentioned that one day her, her brother had been walking by the ferry fort, and suddenly he heard the sound of a large dog coming up behind him. He turned, looked, and there was no dog to be seen. But as he continued on past the ferry fort, he continued to hear the sound of this invisible dog walking close behind him. And, uh, you know, they said seeing the fairy folk was, you know, something that uh, was not any big surprise to them. But this invisible dog was something they couldn't understand. And having researched the topic of the Irish fairy folk a bit myself, I was able to explain the two of them that what uh, the brother had encountered may be one of the forms of the puka. Because one of the forms of the puka is a demon dog 
whose job it is to guard the ferry fort. Mm -hmm. Sometimes Mm -hmm. he's invisible, sometimes he's actually seen, which you really don't want to see because he supposedly has eyes that burn like fire. And uh, when they came up with uh, an allegedly true account of somebody experiencing uh, a form of the fairies whose job it is to guard the fairy fort in exactly the right place, that made me think that what they were telling me was absolutely true. It's a very interesting story, and I, I'd it's, love to have that experience. It's yes, enough to make a believer out of you. they were quite surprised when <laughs> I told them the story about the puka. I could tell quite clearly that they were uh, surprised by what I was telling them, and uh, wow. it made a believer out of me. Oh. I've also encountered two people who claim to have heard the banshee oh, before the death of someone in their family. Yeah. So uh, I've gone from being a skeptic to becoming a real believer. All right, Mark, That's uh, those are stories for uh, food for thought there. Thanks for your call. Well, thank you so very much. All right, be careful next time you go to Ireland. <laughs> oh, I'm looking forward to encountering <laughs> the fairy folks the next time. All right, Any, that gives our trip an extra dimension, that's for sure. Take care, Mark. Okay. Thanks for your call. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been learning about the Irish fairies, and we've been talking with Barry Maloney and Stephen McPhillamy. And um, Barry and Stephen, uh, do one of you have some sort of a just safeguard so when I go to Ireland next time, I I don't uh, meet the the fairy of my nightmares? What can protect me from the fairies? Well, the safest way to protect yourself against the fairies is through avoidance. Don't talk about them, don't mention them, and avoid the times at which they're most prevalent. And those times are the borders between seasons, like May Day, 1st of May, that's when the fairies are moving, or the most famous one in the world, Halloween, mm-hmm. the transition between autumn and winter. Avoid those days when the fairies are busy, yeah. and don't mention them. Don't mention them, or use a code. If you want to refer to them, refer to them as the wee folk or the other crowd, but not directly as fairies. Okay, the wee folk. Thank you so much, Barry. Thank you so much, Stephen, and... Uh, You'll be safe in Ireland. We'll be safe in Ireland. After joining us during our recording session on Fairies of Ireland, Caller Mark in California suggested we invite him back on the show to talk about the ghosts he's found in San Francisco. And we replied, why not? It's Halloween. Coming up next, the author of San Francisco Ghosts tells us about the characters he's uncovered in the cool gray city by the bay, where legends and possibly spirits live on. And Jake Warga takes us along with a group of urban ghost hunters to find out what they conjure up in a cemetery near the Seattle airport. You're listening to Travel with Rick Steves. In the late afternoon, when the Pacific fog creeps in on long fingers through the Golden Gate, it starts its journey into San Francisco Bay by wrapping itself around the old prison on Alcatraz Island. Then it eventually spreads itself around the city through redwoods and eucalyptus trees and isolating hilltop homes before it finishes its nightly ritual of whiting out the sky over the rest of the bay. It's just that kind of setting that makes San Francisco ripe for reports of encounters with ghosts. It's a city filled with imposing Victorian-era homes and mansions, and some of them come with stories that make certain women cross themselves whenever they happen to pass by on the sidewalk. Mark Lyon is an actor who leads tours of haunted places around the old gold rush towns of the Sierra Nevada foothills. He's also published tales of 100 documented ghost reports in the city by the bay in his book San Francisco Ghosts. He's here to introduce us to some of the explorers and settlers whose lives may have ended in San Francisco, but their stories, and maybe something more, lingers on. Mark, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. 
So there's a hundred documented authentic ghost claims in San Francisco. What what is an authenticated ghost claim? Well, what I would say might fall into the category of a valid ghost sighting would be when somebody sees or experiences some ghostly phenomena in a place they have no idea that the place is supposed to be haunted, and it matches perfectly something historical that had happened there of which they were unaware, or perhaps matches precisely the experience that somebody else had at a different time in the same place. Okay, well, that would make you think that there must be something to this. I One of my favorite things in San Francisco is just to stand there on and look out at Alcatraz. And every time I look out at Alcatraz, I think, God, I bet that place is haunted. What's with Alcatraz? Oh, it definitely is haunted. Among the more famous ghosts, there is somebody who whistles, and that's been attributed to Robert Stroud, the famous birdman of Alcatraz. Now, how they know it's actually him, I don't know, but uh, maybe because he whistles like a bird. So you don't doubt that there's a ghost whistling, but you doubt that it's actually the birdman of Alcatraz. Yeah, yeah. I'm, okay. I wouldn't say I doubt. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just not, not convinced. Not convinced. Uh, but one that is fairly uh, reliably identified is Al Capone. During the time that he was in Alcatraz, he actually played the banjo in a four-person uh, band at Alcatraz, and people who have gone by his cell have claimed to hear banjo music. And this would be an example of documented because different people who didn't know this was a phenomenon would say, I swear I heard banjo playing at, at Al Capone's cell. And then they exactly. say, well, he played the banjo. And my <laughs> goodness, that gives you creeps right there. Absolutely. When things are haunted, does it generally because something horrible happened on that spot in the past? That's a really good way to create a ghost, but uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be something terrible one of my favorite stories is the story of uh, Concepcion Orgueo, who was the daughter of the commandant of the Presidio back during the Spanish period. Yeah. And she fell in love with uh, Baron Rezanov, who was a Russian who came down from Alaska to try to get supplies for his uh, community up in Alaska. And the two fell in love. And they wanted to get married, but there was a problem in that he was Russian Orthodox and she was Roman Catholic. And so he said, no problem. I'll go back to Moscow. I'll get permission from both the Tsar and the Pope and we can get married. And she waited and waited and waited for him to come, waited decades not knowing that he had died trying to cross Siberia in the winter and finally became a nun, and her ghost is said to haunt the footbridge on Lover's Lane in the Presidio. And so it's sad, but it's you know not horrific. I, I tend to think that she's there still waiting for him to come back. By the way, I'm speaking with Mark Lyon, and Mark writes a book called San Francisco Ghosts. Mark, in your work, you run down leads. I mean, I get a little tip that this is a good restaurant or a good hotel, and I'll check it out in my work. And you probably get a tip that this bridge is haunted and, and this nun is still whistling over here or whatever. Like you were just talking about this bridge. Do you go there and just, do you ever feel the presence? I mean, what if I sent you on a false lead and you'd go to the bridge and you'd kind of think, ah, and nothing happened? Or then I send you to the right bridge and you actually feel it. Do you, do you have a sense that there's actually something you feel? Sometimes I do, but since I'm looking for a ghost, it's hard to know whether I'm actually feeling something of a real ghost or whether I'm psychologically creating it myself. When I do my tours in Nevada City and Grass Valley, I very often will have physical phenomena occur during the course of the tour, and when that happens... Uh, Everybody is pretty certain we've experienced something. So everybody goes, who that was? Did you feel what I felt? Well, there's that kind of thing, but sometimes it's more direct. Huh. Uh, I was giving uh, a tour in a haunted hotel where one of, a number of the rooms are haunted, but there's one in which the doorknob supposedly turns back and forth, and the door will shake in the middle of the night. 
Now, I had spent two nights in that room, and nothing happened, and I was quite disappointed. But one day I was doing a tour, had my back to the door, and the people on the tour were suddenly spellbound, and you could hear a pin drop. And I thought, gee, I'm getting pretty good at telling this story. And when I got through, they explained to me that as I was telling the story, the doorknob was turning back and forth. And I thought, well, there's somebody in the room, and they heard me, and they're playing games with us. But So I went downstairs, found out, no, that room was locked up. Nobody had booked it for that night. Oh. And we've had a number of those <laughs> kind of things happen on the tour. Oh, I love it. Now, you're talking about haunted San Francisco. It's not haunted Los Angeles or haunted Denver. Is there something more haunted about San Francisco than other cities? Well, San Francisco is a very small geographic area. And there are, I think, a remarkable number of ghosts for such a small area. But, Mark, when you think about San Francisco, it seems to lend itself to haunted stuff. You've got these old Victorian houses. You've got fog drifting in and distant foghorns. You've got this history going back to Spanish and Russian explorers. You've got the earthquake. You've got the fire. uh, You've got scary cemeteries. I mean, it's just a city that, that just feels like a nice place for ghosts to hang out. And there are so many colorful people that make up San Francisco's history. Colorful, extravagant uh, kind of uh, characters. I don't know whether that tends to make more ghosts than normal people, but when you've got a ghost of somebody along those lines, they're really interesting. (laughs) This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking spooky San Francisco, haunted San Francisco with Mark Lyon. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Jennifer is calling in from San Francisco. Jennifer, thanks for your call. Yes, hello. Hey, Jennifer, you live in San Francisco. Um, Apart from our discussion with Mark, who writes a book called San Francisco Ghosts, are you aware of uh, San Francisco having more than its share of uh, haunted things? Well, I'm aware of it being haunted by uh, real-life three-dimensional characters everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) I I enjoy that tremendously. Uh, I'm not, and I I was rather wondering how creeped out I ought to be, and if if Mark has seen firsthand any ghosts roving around San Francisco, and is there any place I should perhaps avoid for that reason? (laughs) Good question, Mark. If we want ghosts or if we don't want ghosts, where should we go or avoid in San Francisco? Well, I tell you, there's almost no place that you can be ghost-free in San Francisco. But in San Francisco, I would suggest go to the older, more historical parts of San Francisco, and you've got really great chance of running into ghosts. We had spoken about Alcatraz earlier, which, of course, is a given. We've got places like the Haskell House at Fort Mason, in which the ghost of Senator David C. Broderick haunts. Uh, He was taken there after he was killed in the famous uh, duel between Senator Broderick and California State Supreme Court Justice David Terry. You have the Octagon House, which is haunted in the upstairs area. Sutro Heights, very haunted. There's a balcony that overlooks the highway and down onto the cliff house in which two people have fallen to their death. And supposedly one of them can be heard screaming in the middle of the night. The Atherton House is haunted. Uh, Trinity Episcopal Church is a good place if you'd like to just hang out for a long time and wait because there is a ghost that has been seen quite often inside the church. Mark, what about cemeteries? Are there cemeteries where one might go and feel some spirits? San Francisco actually at one time was one great big cemetery. As San Francisco grew over the years, they grew into the cemeteries, and they pulled up the graves. And So the city is sitting on former cemeteries. All yes. the ground is sort of marinated with the flesh of former San Franciscans. Absolutely. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Jennifer, thanks for your call, and be careful. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Mark Lyon, and we're talking about San Francisco ghosts, which just happens to be the name of his book. Mark, when you're thinking about the ghosts of San Francisco, are most of them related to some kind of a crime or some sort of a violent act? Not really. There are some that are related to a crime or 
go to the Curran Theater. There is a mirror that's right opposite the entrance, and people from time to time will see the ghost of a man who uh, was a ticket seller, and this was so the 1930s. There was a, a small-time hoodlum who wanted to impress his girlfriend by getting two tickets to see Showboat, and he didn't want to pay for them. So he stuck his gun into the grill where between where the person who buys tickets would be and the man who's selling the tickets. And uh, in the course of doing it, he got nervous, and it got caught in the grill, and he accidentally shot the gun, killed the man that was selling the tickets, and his ghost has been seen from time to time in that mirror. Whoa. Now, if you said that with less of a friendly voice, I'd be scared. <laughs> <laughs> and another example of the kind of thing you're talking about is if you go to Golden Gate Park. In Stowe Lake, there's an island, and on the island is Strawberry Hill. And there is a woman, young woman, who has long hair and is has a very panic-stricken, bedraggled look and wearing a white dress that has now been stained uh, as a result of searching all over the island for her infant child. And the story goes that she had taken her child out on a boat and somehow the child fell overboard. She then dove into the lake trying to save her child and both of them were drowned and According to uh, the folklore, at least, she is out there still trying to find her infant child. Whoa, there's a lot of stories swishing around the dark shadows of San Francisco, especially this time of year. Hey, Mark Lyon, this has been fun talking to you, and uh, I hope we've given some people grounds for nightmares tonight, especially if they live in the Bay Area. Uh, Your book, San Francisco Ghosts, is full of more stories like these. And uh, we just want to wish you a ghoulish Halloween. Well, thank you, Rick. And I wish a great Halloween to everybody listening. Okay, take care. San Francisco fan Gave her life to save a man A man who wasn't worth A shovel full of her from the grave of San Francisco Where do people say the ghosts hang out where you live? Jake Warga joined a group of nighttime ghost hunters in a cemetery near the Seattle-Tacoma airport, and he files this report for us on what he found. About once a month, the ghost hunting group I belong to goes out on late-night investigations of cemeteries. What are we looking for? Well, ghosts. Most of the group are flashing away into the darkness with digital cameras, hoping for an orb, a circle I like to call dust, or ectoclouds, a strange fog I like to call breaths. It's very cold. No, I don't believe you can capture a ghost or spirit on film. The strangest things I've seen since joining the group are actually things I've heard. Unexplainable voices on tape, sometimes quick answers to questions, or just a voice, faint, you can't account for. This is why many of us have cassette recorders, myself included, to record on tape voices other than the living. People are goofing around, chatting, forming small groups, and walking off into the darkness over grassy hills. I'm busy with my tape recorder, fiddling with a mic, headphones, and a dorky headlamp, all while wearing thick gloves. By the time I look up, I'm alone, my headlamp lighting the path of my gaze over neat grass and rows of headstones. My breath explodes in front of me by the light on my head. I imagine faces in the swirling clouds peering back at me, the hissing in my ear like bad static. I turn off the light. I don't feel too alone. Strobes fire randomly around me from other members, trees and tombstones taking shape then disappearing, their ghostly outline remaining for a few more blinks. The drone of Interstate 5 over the ridge is constant, and every 15 minutes a jet leaves nearby SeaTac. This is not a quiet resting place.
I read some of the markers. Some had long lives, others short. Graves are such silent things, yet they say so much. Now, artificial flowers really bother me. I spot some hanging from a small mausoleum. They defeat the symbolism inherent in real flowers. I mean, flowers represent life, beautiful, alive, their bloom short, like life, then plucked, usually in the height of their beauty. No matter how strong or beautiful a flower is, it will wither, die, return to the earth from which it was cut. Flowers are meant to remind us that all things die, except plastic flowers. And this stack of tombs has illuminated fiber optic cables sticking out through sconces that look like candles. I make a mental note to myself, be cremated. I come across a huge pile of flowers from a recent service outlining a grave, so new there's no marker. A framed photo shows a Hispanic man, maybe 25, younger than me. He looks happy. Always smile for the lens is how I was taught. I can't imagine the smile I give a camera only one-sixtieth of a second to capture could well live longer than me, as print and then in the memory of others. When does a mere piece of photo paper become much more than that? I snapped a picture of my father once in his little garden, right before he started chemo. He was beaming with pride among his freshly potted flowers. I enlarged the photo for his funeral service. It rested on an easel at the foot of his closed coffin. Although people looked sad, weeping as they wept past it, my father's face was locked forever in happiness, smiling at his son behind the camera. It's the last image we all have of him. I haven't been to his grave for a long time. Hello? Is there anyone here? Okay, what's the meaning of life? Anyone? I'm not scared walking around a cemetery alone at night, looking for ghosts. I don't necessarily believe in them, but I would like to. And I don't think I'd be scared if I ever did hear voices on my recorder. What really scares me, though, even now, is that I don't hear anything. Other than a group giggling just a couple of trees over. Mark is always flirting with Heather on these things. Life continues on the surface. I'm Jake Warka for Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac kaplan Wolner at Rick Steves Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our friends at CFAX 1070 in Victoria and WUNC Durham for their help this week. You too can be a caller on the show. There's a link on the radio page at ricksteves.com to send us your email address so that we can notify you of our next recording sessions and topics. See you next week for more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for London, England, Great Britain, Scotland, and Ireland. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for this region and beyond, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.